As we begin this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from the 68th Psalm, verses 19 and 20. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. Father, we are blessed that you daily bear our burdens. Sometimes, Lord, you allow us to bear our own burdens simply because we don't bring them to you, and we neglect to commit our well away and ourselves to you and to pray and to seek your guidance and your help. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that the first resource that we have is our Father in heaven, and that in every one of our needs, whatever comes our way, that prayer is, should be the first order of business, not the last resort. Oh, God, help us to know that the struggles we have in life are wrestling with principalities and powers and not with flesh and blood. And there isn't any way we can have victory over unseen forces except through the power of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, teach us each day to seek you in prayer and to commit our way to you and to trust you moment by moment throughout the day. Father, as we continue our study from the book of 2 Samuel, so many things reinforce this. And I pray that the truths that are here in 2 Samuel and, and in a couple of the Psalms that we'll look at uh, this morning as well, that uh, you will be our teacher and our guide and our strength. And Father, we do want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being subjected to horrible violence around the world, even as we read in the bulletin this morning about Alliance pastors being killed in Colombia and missionaries attacked in uh, Ecuador and violence in Peru and in West Africa and so many places in the world. We know, Lord, this is the enemy lashing out against the kingdom of God. But the scripture tells us that the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. The church will prevail. And so, Lord, we pray that you will strengthen our faith, that you will comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, and to be their strength and their shield. And may the kingdom advance in a mighty way this day by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sunday before last, Dr. Walmart came up after class and uh, pointed out to me that uh, Psalm 32 is parallel to Psalm 51 in, in many ways. And we noted that Psalm 32 was one of the seven penitential psalms, and I, I just listed them for you. And we spent last Sunday looking at Psalm 51 primarily, and Psalm 51 is the middle of the seven penitential psalms if you pro progress through the book of Psalms numerically. What is interesting about the uh, 32nd Psalm is that it appears to refer to the same events as the 51st Psalm does, but at a considerably later period of time. In other words, it's, it's looking back through time at an event which occurred maybe months, maybe years ago. We don't know the actual time frame here. So what we have here in the 32nd Psalm is a psalm that is less emotional, less, less caught up in the, in the emotion which you feel so strongly in, in the 51st Psalm, but more meditative helping us to see profound truths that David had discovered through what God had done in his life as a result of the year of rebellion that he went through with Bathsheba and, and the death of Uriah. 
and uh, hiding himself uh, in the midst of all of that. Ga David came out of this with some profound insight as to foundational truths of human existence. And this, of course, came from his reflection on his own folly and on God's forgiveness and, and the mercy of God in the midst of this. Because if David were to stop, and, and, and certainly he did, and that's part of what you see revealed in the 51st Psalm, and think about what he had done and how he had shut God out and trampled on the promises of God for probably the better part of a year, and then to see how God mercifully came back and, and forgave him and refreshed him. I mean, it, David just broke down as, as a result of that. But mon months or years later, he looks at it with a little bit more of a uh, mature perspective. And one of the things we gain out, all of, out, of, out of all of this is that nothing, nothing is more destructive than hidden sin. Nothing. Nothing is more destructive in our lives than hidden sin. And on the other hand, nothing is more exhilarating, nothing is more releasing than the knowledge that our sin has been forgiven. I don't know what a butterfly feels like being released from the cocoon <laughs> or the chicken from the egg. But since they're just animals, I don't know that they can reflect on that. But if we could put ourselves in that place and, and just view ourselves as having broken free of the confinement of the cocoon or the egg. That's certainly how David must have felt. Let's, let's take a moment and um, read through the 32nd Psalm. It's a short Psalm, but a powerful one. And, and think of it in these terms. David, months later, after having written the 51st Psalm, is now writing what we call the 32nd Psalm. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You get the sense of broken, having broken free? How blessed. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose, in whose spirit is no deceit. <laughs> After having been deceitful for a year, that deceit has been removed and washed away and David is walking openly before his Lord again. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. And we don't read that, do we? And we don't know what he exactly means by that. But, but he felt a decay, uh, a demoralization, a going downhill uh, during the time that he was hiding his sin. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now again, we don't read that in, in, in the... Um, in 2 Samuel, but David is now revealing what was really happening to him as he viewed it in the midst of that time of rebellion. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you did forgive the guilt of my sin. You feel the release? The huge load just rolling off of David? Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in the time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. 
I will, in, now the Lord is speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall, which you shall go. I will counsel you with mine eye, my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or as a mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. David again, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I mean, it's just a, a totally refreshing psalm, uh, a psalm in which we find the, uh, the uh, praise of God coming out of the midst of the penitence that David had, had gone through. And so if you, if you link the two psalms, 51 and 32, and, and put Psalm 51, although numerically it comes later, before 32 in time, uh, you, you can see the progress uh, that happens there. Uh, you can see the process and the result, if you will. In, in thinking about this, another psalm came to my mind in which um, the mercies of God are uh, so profoundly pointed out to us. And, and this is the oft-quoted Psalm 103. Like Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, it's a psalm of David. But unlike Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, it is not particularly a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of praise. Although the whole psalm is uplifting, I'd just like to read a few verses in Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8. You've read this psalm and heard it quoted on many occasions, even this particular part of it. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Now we've heard statements like that time and time again. We've heard it over and over again in the Old Testament, in other places. We've heard Moses say this, uh, and we've, we've gained this uh, in, in, from so many sources. And so we understand these are attributes of our Lord. Compassion, graciousness, slow to anger, loving kindness. These are his attributes. This is what he is. Verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And of course, that last part of verse 11 qualifies this whole thing. To whom is he speaking? Those who fear him. Those who fear him, he will he will not deal with us according to our sins nor reward us according to our iniquities. Those who do not fear him will reap the, re the punishment of their sins and iniquities. And notice verse 12. It's, it's a very insightful verse. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now east and west are relative directions. East and west are infinite. The, you, you can go east, and no matter how far east you go, there is no place in which you cannot still go east. You'll notice the psalmist did not say north and south, because that is not true of north and south. East and west are, are infinite, north and south are finite. Uh, you can go far enough north where the, the next step you take is south. When you get to the North Pole, and you walk one foot off of the North Pole in any direction, you're going south. So it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. 
because that would be, a, a, as I said, a finite, a, a limiting thing. But east and west are infinite. You can go around the globe as long as you live and keep going east if you want, or west, whichever way you chose to go. Horace Greeley said to go west, and so many did. In Russia, they went east when they expanded. You know, uh, Ivan the Terrible sent them east over the Ural Mountains and out into Siberia. <laughs> that was a more harsh environment than for those who went west over the American plains. So it's, you know, obviously you see that would, would David have known, or in this instance David, would David have known that north and south differ from east and west in terms of this infinite fight, finiteness? Maybe not, but God knew. And so this, this is another point at which we understand the inspiration of God in the writing of his word. Verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Do you daily sense the compassion of God? Do you have that sense that God is compassionate upon you every day? One of the things that helps us to understand when Christian tradition and Christian, so-called Christian churches have have begun to miss the mark and, and to become humanly uh, infused is where you begin to view God as somebody who's angry and looking for the nearest opportunity to just whack you across the back of the head, you know. God is always up there looking for your next misstep so he can deal with you. That's not the God of the Bible. That's a human in, invented God that unfortunately has crept into some branches of, of Christianity. As I mentioned to you before, when, when Martin Luther was a child growing up, it was commonly believed in, in Europe at that time that Jesus was very angry and that the only way you could get Jesus to have a little compassion on you was to go through his mother Mary because mothers know how to make their sons more compassionate. And, and of course what that does is that exalts, actually in my, almost exalts Mary above, above Jesus. And that's not scriptural. That's what humans have done to change the Word of God. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He knows our frame. Jesus has been in our frame, and He knows what we face. He doesn't have to be interceded with by some saint or His mother or anybody else. You and I go directly to Him in prayer, and He is our God, our King, our Elder Brother, our Savior, all of these things He is to us. And David learned all of this the hard way, the hard way. Well, let's go back to 2 Samuel, finish the 12th chapter. Uh, gears change here quickly. So let me read uh, beginning at verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, and captured the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, lest I capture the city myself and it be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head and its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, or precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. 
and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it, and set them under saws, sharp instrument, iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I want to remind you again, since we've been a little bit away from the uh, story here, uh, dealing with, with David's dalliances, that all of this occurred in the midst of an attack that Israel had locked, launched against the uh, country of Ammon. You see the word Ammon here? And the uh, uh, Ammonites, we, we've talked about them before, were a uh, Canaanite people who uh, lived out on the edge of the desert here. This is a plateau here that tapers off out into the great Syrian desert here. And, and it's a fairly hostile desert. Generally speaking, people don't, have not historically crossed this <coughs> desert in the past. Nowadays, of course, there are roads across it. But um, Rabbah here was the capital of Ammon. And uh, today, the same site has a city on it. The city does not commemorate the name of the original city, Rabbah, but commemorates the name of the people, Ammon. You go to Amman, Jordan. That's the capital of, of Jordan, Amman. And the name, of course, derives from Ammon, which used to be the land here. The people who live there uh, today are... You know, there probably is some Ammonite blood in them, that they're basically uh, Arabs or related people to the Arabs. Jordan is ruled by an Arab, the Arab family. The uh, Hussein family originally came from Saudi Arabia. And so Rabbah here, and here's Jerusalem. They're not terribly far apart, maybe 50 miles or so. But intervening between Jerusalem and Rabbah is the great gorge here of the Jordan River. And so from 2,500 feet elevation at Jerusalem, you have to go down below sea level into the Jordan Valley here, which at Jericho is 900 feet below sea level, and then cross the valley. And the Jordan River is not difficult to cross. It's not a big river. It's, it's in, in most of the U.S., it'd be called a big creek. In California, we'd call it a river because we don't have any real rivers in California except Sacramento. Have you ever seen the Los Angeles River? <laughs> Or the Fresno River. <laughs> it's just kind of a wadi, as they would call them over in the... Yeah, right, concrete line. And then you have to rise up to over 3,000 feet in elevation, actually in some places 4,000 feet, and drop down a little bit to get to Raba. So it's not like a, a walk in the park. Uh, it, it's a rather strenuous uh, journey to make this trip. Well, Joab has had the army of Israel over there, uh, laying siege to the city while David has gone through the process that we have talked about over the last few Sundays uh, there in Jerusalem. Exactly when the passage we just read occurred has been debated. The siege of Rabbah began at the time that David was uh, seducing Bathsheba. And, and we remember that because it, the scripture tells us that while Joab was over there doing that, uh, laying siege to the city, David was, n did not go out with his army but stayed in Jerusalem and fell into his uh, sin. So when does the city fall? Does the city fall during that year that David is in rebellion against the Lord? Well this is possible. But Generally speaking, sieges in the ancient world took a long time. They're, the engines that were used 
and we call them engines because they're man-made instruments to, to try to break into a city. They're not an engine like a V8, V8 engine, not a, the Jews, of course. <laughs> they were very primitive in those days. And, and basically, it was like trying to hammer on a wall to knock a hole in it somewhere or dig under it or build a, a me mechanism that can roll up against the wall so you can crawl up on top of it. You know, pretty primitive stuff. And so sieges tended to take a long time, and sometimes they took multiple years. As I pointed out before, what later when we get to the Assyrian siege of the city of Samaria, that took three years for a mighty army. So you can imagine how long it would have taken probably for Joab uh, to, to break into the city. So I, I believe that the city was finally captured after David had met the Lord had written Psalm 51 and had been renewed in his commitment to God and had uh, become again a man of peace, that it was after that that the city finally fell and that we have this description here. And thus the fall of the city becomes another statement of God as to his blessing upon this man who has turned back to his, to his faith. Sometimes we forget as we're told in the first chapter of James, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, with whom there, there is immutability. He is unchanging. He's the same. You know, he, he is like, he's not like you and I are, because our kids tick us off and, and they ask for forgiveness and we say, yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll forgive you, you know. <laughs> But are we instantly going to give them good gifts? Well, sometimes it takes a while. You know, our, our, our feelings have to cool down. We have to ra rationalize within our head, you know, were they really sorry, da-da-da-da. But that isn't how God operates. God knows if we're sincere. God cleanses us of our sin. God gives us good gifts. Now, he doesn't just turn around every time we ask for forgiveness of sin and hand us, a, you know, a silver platter. But he does bless us each and every day. In fact, the fact that we have life every day is a gift from God above. Joab's message is very interesting here. <laughs> Let me read the first part of it uh, again back in verse 27. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people and camp against it and capture it, lest I capture the city myself and it be named after me. It sounds like double talk. You know, I've captured the city, but you better come over and capture it so it isn't named after me. You know, what, what, what are you saying, Joab? Um, how could David capture the city if you've already captured the city? You know, what, what, what kind of sense is this? Well, I think what we have to do is view it this way. Joab had finally broken through the walls of the city of Rabbah, but he had only captured a portion of the city, a portion called the Royal Quarter. This apparently was the lower part of the city. The city was, as many of the ancient cities were, was built on a slope, on a hillside, actually on, the, uh, on a valley wall. And he had captured, he calls it the city of waters, which apparently means the water supply of the city. He has captured the portion of the city, the, the royal quarters, where the water supply was located. But the rest of the city has still withstood the attack. The rest of the city is still inviolate. It has not yet been captured. And so he is inviting David. I've already broken in the city. I've captured their water supply. So now they're in really bad shape because if your water supply has been taken, you're extremely vulnerable in, in that 
climate particularly uh, to, to defeat. And so I've done this, so you come over and complete the conquest of the city. <clears throat> I'm reminded again of Jerusalem in 1917. When the British army had captured the city of Jerusalem, it was not until the city was in the hands of the British that Edmund uh, Allenby, the commanding general of the British army, entered the city. He entered the city after it was already in the hands of the British. He, the commander, now entered the city in a very, in a great uh, parade, you, you could say. And what is interesting uh, about this, and you've, you probably have already know this, is that he refused to enter the city on horseback. He said, I will not enter the city of my Lord on the, on the top of, of a conquering horse if my Savior walked out of it on his feet. And so he walked into the city and would not ride uh, into the city as a conquering hero. And so part of the city still withstood. And so it was up to David to bring, when it says the rest of the people, it means the local army units, <laughs> the local National Guard, and, and bring them over. <laughs> Les, would you bring the guys in? No, you're out now, so... <clears throat> Let's don't do that. Now, it was very common for ancient cities to have a citadel or an acropolis within the city. Most of you are familiar with the Acropolis in Athens. And if you've ever been to Athens, you know it stands high above the city. That's what Acropolis means. Acro, high, polis, city, high city. The high city, which is over the re remaining part of uh, Athens. If you ever go to the Acropolis, you look down into the heart of the ancient city of Athens and even the, most of the modern city. There are a few other high points around, but they weren't within the walls of ancient Greece at the time the Acropolis was, was an important uh, feature. And so it was very common to have a high place, uh, a citadel someplace, as a place of last resort where you flee to if the enemy gets inside the city. But another thing that was also true of ancient cities was very common for a city to uh, not just have walls around like this so that you have walls, the outside and inside is just this hollow area with lots of buildings in it. It was very common for walls to also be built internally so that you might have the city quartered, let's say. And so a north-south wall and east-west wall, just as, as a possibility, might be built so that the city was separated into different quarters. The, the purpose of those walls was twofold. First, it was to separate one quarter of the city from other quarters, and usually the rich and the powerful would live in one particular quarter, and if the poorer class got upset and rioted, you could shut the gates and <clears throat> seal off the wealthy from the poor and, and thus not allow them to be slaughtered. But more importantly, <clears throat> the internal walls allowed for the city to continue to fight if a portion of the outer wall had been breached. Because the enemy is in the city, but they're not in the whole city because these other walls seal off other parts of the uh, city, just like bulkheads in a ship are there. So if you puncture one part of the hull, it can be sealed off so the rest of the ship is not invaded by water. And so this, this was common. And that's apparently what, was, what happened here. If you go to the city of Amman today, you will not find the ruins of this city. What you will find are the ruins of the New Testament era city when the city was called Philadelphia. And there's an amphitheater, thank you, amphitheater there and, and a few other remnants of the city from that particular time. So it seems that the portion of the city that had the water supply, unfortunately for the Ammonites, had been captured. The other part of the city was still fighting and, and was protected by internal walls, apparently. 
and, but, but they were very vulnerable because the water supply had been captured. Now Joab's statement in verse 28 where he says, Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it lest I capture it myself and it be named after me. This is not an expression of humility. That was not an attribute of Joab, humility. What we have here is that he knew that he did not have David's unqualified confidence. David had gotten really ticked at Joab because Joab had done some things that David had specifically said should not be done and he went ahead and did them anyway. The only reason he still had the job was he was David's best commander. And so he knew that to go out on a limb and, and do this on his own could put his job at jeopardy. He felt it would be wiser also to let David finish the conquest of the city and let David decide what to do next. Because when you capture a city, what do you do with it? Do you just occupy it as it is or do you like, do like the Romans had a tendency to do and that was flatten the whole thing and then come around a century later and rebuild it again? You know, yes. something not terribly bright about that. <laughs> but they usually let their wrath <laughs> dictate what they did at the moment. So let, let David decide what to do here because if he went ahead and did something, he would lay himself open to royal criticism. David could say, Joab, you did this, you did this, you did this, you are cashiered, you know. So he invited David to bring an army and complete the capture of Rabbah. So David accepted his commander-in-chief's advice and he came over and consummated the conquest of the city of Rabbah. Scripture tells us here that as a symbol of his victory that David captured in war the royal crown of Ammon. Now I propose to you that David may have put the crown on for a ceremony, but I propose to you he did not wear the crown around. Because the scripture says it was made of gold and it weighed a talent. Well, the best we can tell, a talent was somewhere between 65 and 70 pounds. So, you know, I don't think he just walked around with this crown on his head, you know, because he would have been shorter very quickly <laughs> had he worn it very much. Uh, it was obviously a ceremonial crown, purely for ostentatious uh, presentation. It's undoubtedly why the king of Ammon had such a huge crown. David's forces sacked the city of, of, of Rabbah sacked the city. They, they took all the spoils. That was the rule in those days. One of the reasons you did that was that's how you paid your army. They didn't get the big cash layouts that modern soldiers get. <laughs> I was waiting for Les's response to that. <clears throat> well, <laughs> backing off of that, um, our soldiers do get paid. Uh, historically, soldiers have not been paid. They got paid by whatever they could capture, whatever they could gather in the victory. That's why you, you go down through history and you read about battlefields. After the battle was over, you find that the camps are stripped. The men who have fallen in the battlefield are stripped of everything, sometimes even their clothes. Quite often, camp followers are responsible for the ultimate humiliation of the dead on the battlefield. But nevertheless, all the goodies are taken by the soldiers because that's how they pay themselves for having served. They take goodies home uh, for, their, for their family and uh, for their pay. Now, the last verse there in the chapter, in verse 31, uh, can be a bit 
confusing. But I think we need to understand this. Knowing the character of David, that what it is telling us here is that as is true throughout history again, when you captured a city, well, depending on who the people were. Yeah. When the Romans captured uh, Carthage, the people they didn't butcher, they sold into slavery. In David's case here, he enslaves the people in their own land. The scripture says that he sets them to hard labor, cutting rock, cutting wood, and working in the brickyards, the brick kiln. And so their job became, to do, became doing the heavy work. They remained in the land, but they worked for Israel now. They worked for David. And the whole country of Ammon was absorbed into the Davidic Empire. And again, pointing out that inside these red lines, you have the Davidic Empire, the main part of the empire, the extension that David uh, established clear up to the Euphrates River uh, that uh, carried over into Solomon's time. And so Ammon now is absorbed within the Davidic Empire. Uh, the only areas here that were not absorbed into David's empire were Philistia here, which was subsidiary to Israel. It came under Israel's hegemony. Israel dominated the Philistines, but allowed them to continue to have a certain measure of home rule. And, and the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were in, not in a tributary status to Israel, they were in a trade status. They were not in, in submission uh, to Israel, but in a good trade and political alliance with Israel. In fact, one of the later kings would marry a daughter of the, of the king of Tyre, and of course we know her as Jezebel. And that wasn't a particularly good, uh, good marriage, but <laughs> anyway. So that, that, that's the situation. So pretty much now, the Davidic Empire is, is put together. And we will be moving on into the beginning of, of the internal breakdown in, in the sense that all kinds of, uh, what, what do I want to use as a phrase here? Things that would be reported in the National Enquirer <laughs> began to occur within David's own household. And, and that's what we'll be looking at next as we move into the 13th chapter of uh, the book of 2 Samuel. The tragedy of David's relationship with Bathsheba will have an ongoing impact in his own household. Not that alone. Many other things that David had done and failed to do played a role in what would happen in his own household. And, and we begin to read some horrible things in the 13th chapter. And as you go on even into the first chapter of First Kings, you continue to read tragedy in the household of David. So what do we say? We say David was forgiven of his sin and God gave him good gifts, but that doesn't mean that God cancels out all of the consequences of our folly. But he does use them, of course, for good if we allow him to do so. And so next Sunday, as I mentioned to you before, uh, Cindy Strong will be here to uh, begin uh, talking, uh, giving a lesson on Islam. And then Sunday after that, we'll pick up with the 13th chapter of 1 uh, Samuel.